Welcome to the Good Grind Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from uh, soggy, wet Macomb, Illinois. Soggy because it's raining and crazy humid, ridiculously humid. You don't know if it's raining on you, if you're sweating, or just walking around your house or outside. So uh, we have got a great show for you today. We are going to be talking renewable energy, looking at solar energy primarily uh, with Aaron Garrett. But before we get to Aaron, we have to introduce our guests with us every single week. We are joined by local foods educator Katie Parker in Adams County. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are things going in Macomb? Uh, just dumping out the rain gauge a couple times a day, you know. Uh, we've had weird weather swings. We've gone from three weeks of dry weather to now like a week and a half, maybe two weeks here of just rain every day. It's, yeah. it's wild. Yeah, I hate to even complain because next thing you know, we drought again. Exactly, exactly. The pendulum swings both ways, it feels like. So, uh, yes, it's it's been a while, Katie. So how, how are things going uh, in your neck of the woods? Oh, just keeping busy. Uh, things, you know, since it was so hot uh, and then we got some rain, things are just booming. Um, our garden looks great. We have a lot of things. Our, our sweet corn starting to tassel, so hopefully we'll have some sweet corn in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and it seems like Matt just plants something new every day. Um, so, so he is constant. And then um, with all the rain, I mean, we we started a rain barrel too because we might as well capture all that moisture. Um, but what's new with you? You know, uh, not not terribly much. Uh, we're doing a lot of container gardening with the program that I've been kind of a series of programs I've been doing this summer. So. Um, I've just been living it up with containers on my deck and haven't had to water a single thing. It's been fantastic. So yeah. I've been enjoying that. That's a positive. Yes. As someone who I know has a lot of containers, whether it's annuals, perennials, tropicals, things he's moving inside, outside, we have horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. Yes, and those, it's been nice not having to water those pots. Very nice. Big, big pots that you have there and how did the garden survive uh the vacation it, it made it through so we had somebody watching our dog in the house and they they did a good job watering so came back and everything was alive and and going good had lots of weeding to do though so mm -hmm. lots of catching up on weeding definitely i i was uh helping out a neighbor while they're on vacation to water their garden and i didn't have to do a darn thing <laughs> <laughs> It was great. Well, yeah, it, would have been, uh, it would have been nice if it was if we were on vacation this week, but our basement started flooding too. So I don't know if we'd want the uh, person watching our house to deal with that. So yeah, they, they may never watch your house again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, kind of in, in a similar vein, we're talking about homes and, uh, you know, floods, droughts, and talking about energy. Uh, renewable energy today. And so we have a special guest. So let us welcome uh, Aaron Garrett. So Aaron is an energy and environment educator down located in Southern Illinois. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Aaron, I, I remember when you joined Extension and you are located at the Southern tip of Illinois. Is that correct? I am. Yes. Coming to you from Metropolis today. So way down in Southern Illinois. Exactly. I, I went to school in Carbondale and I did not realize that's still 
not <laughs> down south. Not quite. <laughs> I mean, it's south, southern Illinois, but there's still quite a bit of driving to get to before you get down to Metropolis, Cairo, places like that. Yeah, definitely. So, Aaron, um, with Extension, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your role as an energy and environment educator uh, in your area. Right, so um, I cover a, a wide array of programming um, in that topic area. So anything from um, renewable energy, energy efficiency, uh, mostly focusing on, on homeowners and small changes um, that you can make to improve your home energy efficiency. And then I also do everything from master naturalist program to plant identification, um, throw in some master gardener stuff as well, because we have a whole mix of, of things going on down here. So pretty much anything and everything natural resources related, uh, we, we do it all. <laughs> so basically it is, if you're outside, it's yours. Basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes inside stuff too. Yep, definitely. So Aaron, you, we, we hit on renewable energy here. I mean, it, it's something that you're working on with a, a group of uh, other extension educators. But before we, we dive into renewable energy, can we define what exactly are we talking about? And what are some options that we here have in Illinois? Because I remember living in Kansas and that's like wind. Man, that's, that's quite an option here. Is that something we can do here? What's, what's going on for Illinoisans? Right, so sticking with the basics, renewable energy, um, is energy generated from sources that theoretically won't run out, right? So in theory, it's it's always going to be available for our use. Um, so there's lots of different options, you know, everything from solar to wind, geothermal, you've got hydroelectric power and biomass. So those are kind of all of our non-renewable energy options that we have, not just here in Illinois, but across the country, right? Um, but it's important to remember with your renewables, that your time of day and your season affects their availability, right? So um, we can't just pick one and, and focus on that. Um, but when it comes to Illinois, you know, solar is a really great option and we're seeing that pop up and spread um, across across the state pretty, pretty greatly. So what is biomass? I'm curious. What um, so there's there's a few different um, things that go in biomass, but basically like your biofuels. So um, biofuels and burning of wood are kind of the two main um, things that you can put under biomass. So we've been seeing a lot of um, like solar panels popping up, whether it be on structures or freestanding. Um, does that seem to be the most popular option for uh, providing renewable energy? At this point, it Solar is very um, easy to understand, easy to install. And um, for the kind of those reasons, it's kind of emerged as the front runner for at least residential, right? If you think about, you know, having a wind turbine near your home, that just seems more complex than putting solar panels on your roof, right? And then um, geothermal spreading a lot in, in popularity for, for homeowners as well, but a lot of times, if you want the least expensive option, you need a lot of land, and that's just not practical for everyone. So because of that, solar really is, you know, emerging as the front runner. And then there, there were um, some incentives that have been passed that really have driven the market and, and jump-started it in the past, you know, few years. So um, if you haven't heard of FIJA or the Future Energy Jobs Act, um, that was the passed and mandated that 
um, our two main electric utilities, Ameren and ComEd, need to have a quarter of their power coming from renewable sources by the year 2025. So that really jump-started the market, um, mostly through wind and solar, um, to get these um, utilities to help support small-scale solar and wind, which has you know, then transferred into increasing incentives for residential solar. So it's kind of trickled down um, and really helped to, to get solar going. Um, and I think a lot of us have seen it pop up um, all over the place. I know I see signs when I'm driving <laughs> um, that say solarized Southern Illinois. So it's, it's, it's happening around us and, and definitely has kind of emerged as um, a really great option for, for homeowners to consider. Is it kind of, it's kind of a local, is it more of a local movement then? Uh, like smaller companies putting these, these up? Yeah, so there's, um, with that um, act as well, there's been a lot of money put towards jobs and put towards training um, for solar installers as well. So you see a lot of um, smaller companies that have emerged and that are, are doing the installations and, and working with these incentives as well. So it, it jump-started that job market as well that's really grown, um, definitely, definitely. So kind of go along with some of this renewable energy stuff. I know you and, and some other people on the energy environment team have been working on smart grid and smart meters, kind of educating people about those. Um, so I guess to the listeners, what exactly is a, a smart grid and you know how would they know if they have a smart meter or not? Yeah, so in this day and age, whenever we get new technology, we call it smart, right? Most of us have a smartphone. We've got smart homes and cars, and I've seen smart refrigerators now that is just blowing my mind. That's crazy. It's a little too, too far for me. Um, but basically, so our electric grid across the U.S. Um, was really outdated. It was over 100 years old. So Upgrades have been happening across the country, and when we upgrade technology, we call it smart because it has that two-way communication, it's more up-to-date, um, it has you know, wireless communicators between the meters, between the power companies, so we're just streamlining and updating the technology. Um, so that's the smart grid that's been happening. Um, it makes our energy a lot more reliable, it makes it easier to understand exactly how much we're using at what points in time to help make the system more efficient. And it allows us to add in renewable sources of electricity much easier than before. Um, the smart grid in Illinois has been updated starting in about 2014, 2015, kind of Amron and ComEd have been updating. And then they're wrapping that up in the last couple years through this year was the original plan. I don't know how on schedule they are, but um, that was kind of the plan. So a smart meter is the component um, that you would see on your house, right? So that's your, your meter outside your home. If you are on Ameren or ComEd and you didn't opt out, at this point, you should have a smart meter. Um, not all of them say smart meter on them, but basically if you don't have an old analog meter, you have a digital meter, it's highly likely that you have a smart meter. Now, a lot of the co-ops in the last decade or so did upgrade their meters to a different digital meter. It's not necessarily a smart meter, but they essentially work quite similarly. Um, and so they no longer need a meter reader to come out. There's no more estimated bills. Um, and there's a lot more information that's being collected. So smart meters can collect your daily and even your hourly 
and down to, I think, 15 minute increment, your electricity usage that's happening at your house. Where does all that information go? It goes to the power company, but you also get access to it yourself. So you can understand when you use electricity throughout the day and throughout the seasons. Now, why is that important? Well, um, with a smart meter, these power companies also have a lot of incentive programs and pricing programs. So you can opt into these programs, understand when you use electricity, change when you use electricity and save money. Um, so it really is just information is power, right? And as we're learning more and we have access to all this information, you can better understand how you use electricity and help yourself save some money, which who doesn't want to save money? I know we all want that, especially as we're now in the summer days and the air conditioning is running constantly. Whatever I can do to lower my energy bill, I'm on board for that for sure. I think before the show, Ken remarked the humidity, relative humidity in Jacksonville is what, 80? one yeah 80 well yesterday it was like 81 in florida in orlando it was like 40 50 percent something yeah. like that <laughs> and, and so yeah, our central air unit just running non-stop just pulling humidity out of the air um it's just it's wild and i i remember when amron came to our our old house we got a new smart meter and everything put on and you could go to your amron account and you can track everything it was so handy to see that and see then after time goes by, year to year even, and how that all shapes out. And we would get like, we got like an energy efficient fridge. We got a new furnace. We were all electric and we could see it start to trend downward, our usage. So, oh, that was so fun to have. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely fun to track. And we um, are on, there's an hourly pricing program that you can join with the smart meter. So you pay the actual price of electricity as it's generated rather than a standard flat rate. And most of the time that price is lower than the standard rate, except for hot summer afternoons mm -hmm. when it's a lot higher. So if you understand when you use electricity and shift your major electricity usage away from those, we call it peak times, you can save money. So we've done that in my household over the past say five years and we've saved you know, hundreds of dollars over that time. So it really is. And it's mostly just running the dishwasher at night and changing when you do laundry. Mm -hmm. And basically those are the two things we do and change the thermostat when we're not home. And that's about it. And it, and it really does work. So um, all in all, you know, the smart grid really is designed not just to streamline the whole system, but to help you as a consumer to save money. So See, my, my dad, who always yelled at me for not turning off the lights when I left the room and that's bumping my job the thermostat now. up. Yeah, that's, that's you. <laughs> yes, he, he feels, yeah, I'm sure he would feel very, uh, you know, he's like, you have totally validated everything that I've said to this child growing <laughs> up. So thank you. Yes, I like that. <laughs> uh, so Aaron, let's say you are a homeowner and I think... I'm there. Katie's there. Ken, I don't know if you're, you're there also. I mean, I would love to have solar power. What questions should we be asking ourselves to get this? What, what, what things do we need to consider? Right. So, so there's a lot of things. It can be overwhelming, but we're going to streamline it and, and just look at a few things. So before we even talk solar, I'm going to take a step back. And the first question you want to ask yourself is, what is your current energy efficiency of your home? And what is your current, what are your current energy needs? Okay. So again, 
from your electric utility, you get a bill every month, right? And it shows in the last year how much electricity you've used over each month. So you have that data. You can see how much electricity you use, okay? You can see how that changes by month, by season. So the first thing you want to do is take inventory of your home and your major appliances um, and see if there are other upgrades you can make first, right? Because when you size a solar system for your home, it's going to be based on your, your current energy usage. So if you can make some other, you know, lower investment changes, that'll change what size system you need. For me personally, my house is almost 150 years old. It's very leaky and it has really bad insulation. So if, before I got solar panels, I'd wanna put my money there first, right? Yeah. So, so paying attention to those, um, those things first is really important. You know, A lot of us take our old freezer and we stick it in the garage. That's the worst place to have a freezer because it's not temperature controlled and it's dirty. That's not where mm -hmm. it, and it's old. It's not where it yeah. wants to be. And it's just guzzling electricity, right? So, so taking an inventory, doing, getting an energy audit, if you want to um, invest in that a little bit and, and making those changes first, that's step number one. Okay. Then we can ask ourselves if we still want, yes, we want to have solar. What kind of system do we want? Do we want our system to be connected to the grid or do we want it to be a standalone system? Okay. At this point in time, um, Grid tied systems are where it's at. Okay, our technology is not quite there when it comes to batteries for you to completely be off the grid, right? And just have your solar panels and be self sufficient. Okay, the the efficiency and the cost of batteries is is just not there. So at this point, we recommend staying grid tied. What does that mean? That means that you can pull electricity from your panels when it's generating the electricity during the day. But at night or on cloudy, rainy days, um, you're going to pull that electricity from the grid. That also means that you'll still have fees associated with being tied to the grid. Okay, so it kind of changes how you have to think about um, generating your own electricity. Okay, so so picking between grid tied and standalone, we usually go with grid tied at this point. Okay, then you need to think about what size system you need. Okay, um, there are really simple calculations that you can do to figure this out. Um, and, and again, it comes back to looking at how much energy you use. So look at your energy bills. Um, if you can look at two years of data, that's great. Most um, online utility companies keep two years of data. Average how much electricity you use annually. And from there, you need to decide what percent of that electricity you want to generate from your solar panels. Okay. A lot of people think that range is going to be between like 75 and 100% of your electricity. That's your goal. But really where you want to be is between 50 and 75%. Okay. So we're kind of shifting the mentality to you really want to undergenerate rather than overgenerate electricity. And there's a few reasons for that. But basically, if, you, if you're able to um, undergenerate, then you're going to save more money essentially in the long term. Um, you also want to not overgenerate over 110% of your needs because then you're considered a producer and the utilities are going to have different rules for you and restrictions and fees and you don't want to even get close to that and touch that. Okay, so sizing your system appropriately is really important. There is, um, there's just a couple factors you need to take into account to do that. 
Um, and we can go through a really quick example. So let's say yes. that um, our annual electricity usage is 10,000 kilowatt hours. Okay, that would be found on your bill. It's really important to look at your own bill because I've analyzed different homes and found a difference of 10,000 kilowatt hours. And I could tell you my home is on the really high end because it's really old and it's not very efficient at all. Um, so let's say we have 10,000 kilowatt hours annually is what we use. And we wanna size our system for 75%. We wanna generate 7,500 kilowatt hours a year, okay? To figure out what size system, systems are sized in kilowatts, okay? Um, so we need to do a quick calculation. That calculation is gonna take into account where we're located, okay? So you need to look at the amount of peak sun hours that you have in a day where your home is located. To do that, you can look um, at a solar irradiance map, and there are some really great maps available um, at nrel.gov, so nrel.gov. You can look up solar irradiance maps. Basically in Illinois, the, the range is from four to four and a half. So it's very small range of peak sun hours in a day. Might seem less than you would imagine it would be. Okay, so here in Southern Illinois, I'm at four and a half. Um, we multiply that by the number of days in a year, which is 365. And then we take into account that our panels aren't always gonna run at peak efficiency. So we're gonna calculate in an 80% efficiency reduction. Okay, when you multiply those three numbers together, you get about 1300. You divide 7,500 by 1,300 and you get about 5.7. You get a 5.7 KW system. That's the size solar panel system that you need. 5.7 generates 75 kilowatt hours. So it's not in, in a straight conversion, right? You can't just, um, you have to do the calculation to figure out what that size system is, okay? That's your next step, okay? Um, there are some, um, economic solar modeling software systems that I have that you can use to help figure out what size you'd want. But that gives you a general idea if you then take that to you know, a company that sells solar panels and they give you a really different number, you'll wanna go back and say, well, this is how I figured mm -hmm. this out. Why are you over quoting or under quoting you know, based on these things. It's always good to have an idea, right? Before you have those conversations, okay? So you size your system, then you need to look at your site, okay? Is this gonna go on my roof or is it gonna be a ground mount, okay? Do you have the land for it to be a ground mount? How old is your roof? That's a really great question. My roof's about 20 years old, it needs to be replaced. So you'd have to add that cost in. Um, I you wanna put it on a new roof, right? Yes, new roof, okay. definitely. Not on the old roof. Mm -hmm. um, I assessed my parents' home for solar and it looked really great, but they needed a new roof. Well, they just got a new roof this year. So now I'm like, hey, it's a great time to think about getting solar panels because the panels are, their lifespan is about 25 years, which is about the lifespan of a roof, right? So you want to time it um, relative on a young roof, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you can also consider a ground mount if you have the space and you don't have shading. Think about shading, think about the direction of your roof. South is great, but don't discount east and west. And if you have a really weird angled roof like I do, you can have multiple directions. It doesn't all just have to be on a flat, you know, 
flat surface. That works great, but um, you don't have to discount it, okay? Um, and then finally, you, you have to consider your overall cost, okay? Again, that it's really hard to, to put a single number on it, but there's a general rule of thumb. Um, at least the last time I checked, um, you can kind of estimate about $2,700 per kW, per kilowatt of your system, okay? So we estimated a 5.7 kW system for this imaginary house that I made up. That'd be about $15,000, okay? That gives you a starting point, again, there's, it's complex. There's a lot of things that go into that. One thing to keep in mind is the majority of the cost of your solar, your solar system is not the equipment costs, but it's installation and maintenance. Well, that varies depending on who you get to do the work. So you always want to get at least two to three quotes and compare because those soft costs is what we call them can vary greatly depending on who you get to do the job. So keeping that in mind that the equipment is relatively standard and it's gonna be less than half of the cost of your system, but it's everything else that goes into it. So you definitely wanna you know, shop around and make sure you don't just take the first one and, and say yes, um, but make those comparisons yourself. So that was kind of a lot of information, right? But starting Five. at looking at efficiency, ground mount or roof mount, <laughs> sizing it, and then your cost. I have learned here in, in your explanation, so a couple of things. First thing is contact Erin if you have questions. <laughs> we'll, we'll put her email in the show notes and description. Um, the other thing is when you were describing sizing, I in my brain was thinking the same thing, the conversation I have when people ask me to size rain gardens. It's like, Oh, this is very because you've got to account for efficiency. You're not going to actually collect all the water that you are have on your product. I mean, there's so many things that are relatable there. So mm -hmm. yes, I followed you, but because I was thinking rain gardens also, <laughs> it was making sense to me. So um it, it's just so okay. So I have another question then. Mm -hmm. Um Katie, you mentioned an oak tree, right? And on your property. Yeah, we have a lot of big trees that uh, nicely shade our house. Okay, so Erin, what is more valuable to Katie, the mature trees that shade the house or a solar system? Because people ask, should I cut down my trees so I can put in a solar system? So the first thing I would do is um, there's a really great tool online. It's called PV Watts. You can look up, it's a calculator. Okay. And it will show you, it's basically like Google Maps. So it'll show you the aerial view of your roof, but it includes shading, right? And you can draw out on your roof where you would want your solar panels to go. And it'll tell you the size system that will fit in that space. So a lot of times it's not your total roof that's shaded out. I mean, sometimes it is, but a lot of the times you can find those pieces that aren't. Um, that you can then still fit solar panels on and generate electricity from. When it comes to, I mean, it's up to you, right? If <laughs> what's more important, if you can trim some branches to still have your solar panel and still have your tree, I say do that. Um, but it just kind of depends on where your priorities are, right? If you cut down trees around your house too, that can influence how the heating and cooling of your home too, because you have shading from the trees. So things to keep in mind, but you could definitely look and size your system um, too. So that was something I didn't mention 
if I size my system for 5.7, that's what we said, then you draw it out on your roof and see, does that even fit? <laughs> and it, in this case, it did. I, I picked a home and put it on and it definitely did fit in, in less than half of the roof. Okay. Um, so, so looking at that too can give you an idea of, of the size and the number of panels that, that you need. Well, and too, okay. like you factored in 80% efficiency. Mm -hmm. So if you have some shading, could you lower your efficiency or is there a point where like your efficiency isn't high enough? So it's like, uh, it's not worth getting solar. Yeah, you, you can, that comes kind of with more of the, uh, intense modeling that you can do. You do, you can't account for shading. Um, you know, if you're going to put a panel where it's shaded 90% of the time, that's not really worth it, right? To put a panel in that spot. So you'd have to assess that and, and through different models that are available, you know, you can assess how the shading changes on certain parts of the roof throughout the day, right? To see where the best spot would be for that. But yeah, it's definitely, if you have a lot of shading, you know, you're gonna have to take that into account for sure um, before deciding to put, put solar in. So you'd mentioned um, like being on grid versus off grid. Uh, if you did decide to um, do more than hundred percent of providing your own uh, um, solar power or electrical power, uh, can you make money by doing that, by providing uh, additional power to the rest of the grid? This is my favorite question. No, you can't. So How a lot of people <laughs> want to build a huge solar array and they're going to get rich by selling excess electricity back to the power company. It doesn't work that way. So it's a very common misconception. Um, and it's kind of why I mentioned before you want to undergenerate rather than overgenerate. Basically, especially with the, the main power companies that you have, if you put a solar system on your home you and it's grid tied, there's a, an agreement that you have to enter into. It's called net metering. And it means that excess electricity that you generate during the day flows back onto the grid. And then you'll pull electricity from the grid at the times that you need it. Okay. The excess electricity that you generate, you will get a bill credit for that amount, but it's at a wholesale rate that's usually much, much, much lower than the standard rate of electricity, okay? So if you overgenerate, you know, 300 kilowatt hours in a month, but you only get two cents back for each of those, you know, you could do the math. That's not really worth it. Um, so, so the idea, if your, the best way I can explain it is using hand motions. So throughout the months, right, your electricity, the amount of electricity you use changes, right? You want to generate your panels at the highest of the lows, okay? So if you're, you know, say in all of the months except the summer, you use, you know, a thousand kilowatt hours a month. Okay, but in the summer you use 2000. These are just random made up numbers. You'd want to have your panels generate a thousand a month. And then the months that you use an extra thousand, you'd want to pay for that from the grid. Okay. If you're over generating a bunch, the amount of money that you get back as bill credits is like pennies, maybe dollars, maybe. Um, to, to really illustrate this, I did a simulation where I sized three different systems. Okay. And it changes by, 
uh, a kilowatt of system, right? We talked about how you could estimate $2,700 per kilowatt size of your system, okay? And going between those, I saw only a savings difference of $33 annually on bill credits versus $5,000 upfront costs in your panels. So it really doesn't add up at all. It does not make financial sense to oversize your system to get back that money because you're just going to lose money in the long in the long run. So really, uh, under generating is where you want to be. Um, try to match as many months as you can and then get a bill credit maybe in two two or three months back and then just pay that excess electricity that you use in those really high demand months, um, pay that from the grid. And that's the best, the best bet if you're looking purely financially at how your panels will work the best. So does this, is this work the same with wind turbines too? So uh, first off, I guess, are most wind turbines, they're not, they're not personal, personally owned, correct? Are they mostly owned by a company and they provide energy to the local electric company? That's a great question. So I don't know as much about wind power and how yeah. that works. Um, we had I had to ask you one question. To yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know um, of anyone that's put in you know, like oh, a residential wind turbine, wind okay, turbine gotcha. and how that works. Yeah. I assume that there would be some kind of agreement. Again, the power, I mean, they know what's up, right? They're, right. They're gonna you can't just put one up and yeah. yeah. Right. If it's, if it's grid tied, they're not just going to pay you right. to generate electricity. Right. Um, but, but the bill credit and, and that net metering agreement was created, right, so that these companies can meet that FIJA requirement, that 25% of their renewable power. They're, for the most part, they're not going out and building, right, solar mm -hmm. farms and wind farms. They're letting you as a homeowner connect in, and then they're claiming that as their, their percentage, okay? So that's why a lot of these incentives, you know, were started so that you do the work and then they can claim that renewable um, to, to meet their quotas, right? So they made it possible to connect into the grid and they give you the bill credit, but it's not meant to incentivize you to get a lot of money from them, right? So they're like, you're welcome. Exactly. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for spending $15,000 on your personal solar grid. <laughs> So speaking of spending $15,000 on solar and, and all these incentives, what incentives are available to homeowners if they want to do solar? Yeah, so there are definitely incentives to keep in mind and take advantage of. Um, there are federal incentives and then there are state incentives. Um, the first one to pay attention to is one called the Federal Investment Tax Credit. And you can claim this on your federal income taxes for a percentage of the cost of your solar system that you put on your home. The rate changes by year and um, we're actually in luck because it was extended. Um, the rate in 2020 was 26%. You can claim 26% of your solar system and get that back. And that's been extended through the end of 2022. So the time is right to consider solar because that rate has been steadily decreasing. Um, in the year 2023, it's going to drop to 23%. And then after that point, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, that's kind of where it ends as of right now, unless a new law is passed. 
and extends that. So again, you have to pay up front, but you can claim and, and get that money back. So if we stick with 15,000 as our estimate, that'd be $3,900 that we could get back. The next thing to keep in mind is something called SRECs or Solar Renewable Energy Credits. They're also called RECs. Um, they're available across the country and it varies widely um, the, the rate of them that you can, can get and the amount of them that you can get. In Illinois, um, it's, it's kind of a complicated program, but it's not something that you'll do yourself. Your solar installer will apply for and handle all of the SREC um, things that happen. But basically, um, you will get a payment back that's based on how much energy your system is expected to produce over 15 years. You get one SREC per 1,000 kilowatt hours. Okay. SRECs value in there, they rate, they have a range of values. In Illinois, depending on what um, power company you have and what part in the um, program you get into, it ranges between $65 and $85 in SREC. In other states, they're like $5. So Illinois has really highly valued their SRECs. Basically, if you do the math, as I did on our made up home, um, you could um, get back 112 SRECs, which is valued at $7,800. These get paid back over five years. Um, so again, you pay it up front, but then over five years, you can get that back. If you add that to your solar investment tax credit, you're looking at $3,200 out of pocket at the end of this, right? Everything has to be up front, but you get it back. But then it's only 3, 000, a little over $3,000 that you haven't reclaimed. Now with that money, you can look at how much energy savings over each year you're going to claim and figure out the math on, on what your return is. Um, a lot of the times if you get a quote or an estimate that says your payback time is like two years on your solar panels, that's not accurate. That's unrealistic. We know at least with the SREX is going to be at least five years. Um, but realistically, looking at like 10 to 15 years is kind of the time range of where your system would have paid itself back through all of your savings. Okay, so it is a long term commitment, um, definitely, but 3,000 isn't 15,000. That's a big difference. So it makes it a lot more um, digestible and feasible um, if you take advantage of those incentives. There is, I will just mention, there is a database of incentives for across the US that you can also look and see if there are additional ones wherever you're living. Um, and it's at desireusa.org, desire, D-S-I-R-E-USA.org. It's missing the first E. Um, so you can look on there, it'll have the federal investment tax credit, it'll have the SRECs, um, but there may be some more local incentives that you could find um, as well. So definitely something to keep in mind, you don't want to pass these up. Um, and having conversations with um, installers should include these financial incentives as well. If they're not mentioning them, make sure you do and then get another quote and find someone who's, who's taking those into account for sure. I'm making notes of all of these links. So thank you, Aaron. We will link to all of these uh, in the show notes below. So now I, you're checking all of my boxes here. We have supporting, uh, you know, possibly local businesses. Uh, uh, we have 
you know, yes, upfront investment, but we can get some uh, you know, tax breaks, incentives, uh, and you're device diversifying our, our energy pool here. So, but let's talk a little bit about maintenance, long-term kind of stuff. Now, I remember reading The Martian, Mark Watney, stranded on Mars, had to go out and clean off his solar panels every day because all the dust that would accumulate. Now, I know we don't live on Mars, but Aaron, what kind of maintenance stuff do we need to think about long-term for our solar panels? Yeah, so not cleaning every day. Um, we look kind of annually, right? Mm -hmm. So especially, I mean, we've been talking about rain uh, happening. We get a lot of rain in Illinois, so you, in theory, shouldn't have to clean your panels all the time, right? But Annually, you know, you'd want to make sure that you assess if any new shading has happened around your panels and maybe trim back some of your tree limbs. Um, you want to spray off and clean your panels. You know, if there's birds living near your panels, you know, you might have to clear off some of their droppings every now and then. Um, and then inspecting your wires as well. So rodent damage, they can chew through um, wires. You want to check and make sure you don't have any broken um, cells in your panels. A lot of them, you know, a lot of times people ask about hail damage and they are designed to withstand that for the most part, but you know, things happen. So um, it's definitely a possibility, but not something to be concerned enough about to prevent you from getting panels, if that makes sense. Um, and then there are other things um, that that might go out, right? Your panels are warrantied at about 25 years, but other parts of the system like inverters, the inverter converts the DC to AC power so you can use the energy that's generated in your home. Those might have to be replaced at 10 or 15 years. So, you know, adding in those costs is something to keep in mind as well. Um, but a lot of the times you can get like a monitoring system of your solar array um, that's connected to your phone or your computer so you can see how much electricity is being generated. You can see if there are problems in the system as well. Um, so having that can, can give you kind of a day-to-day -day look at how your panels are performing and help you catch if there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. But um, definitely you can't just put them up and forget about them. You've got to, you know, check on them and make sure everything's working um, as they should over time. In the winter, do you have to go out and like clean snow off of them? So um, it depends on how snowy your conditions are um, and how, how long it lasts. For me, that's not a concern because if it gets snow, it's gone in like two days, right? Um, you, in general, you just kind of accept the loss at that point for say the week that it lasts if it's there for that long. Um, that's another thing that you can model is for snow cover as well. Um, so you can take that into account, but for the most part, no, you're not gonna have to get up on your roof and scrape the snow off of your solar panels. So you mentioned that you kind of the typical time frame is 25 years. Is that just because the the efficiency decreases so much it's not worth it or they start breaking down or um, it's more, it's more of the efficiency to my knowledge is, you know, that technology is not going to, they're, they're going to reduce their efficiency over time. Um, and that's just kind of the lifespan that we've gotten to at this point. And then does that just tear them down, put new ones up that situation when you hit mm -hmm. that 25 years? Mm -hmm. 
And at that point, new roof time, <laughs> if it's on your roof too. So um, it's good that it lasts that long, right? So hopefully you can get away. But yeah, that's kind of their, their lifespan. So it's not permanent, right? Um, it's a lot more permanent than than other things, like 25 years, but um, it's not going to be there forever. Now, if your home isn't um, a, a great place for solar power, or it's not suitable for solar panels, are there other options that you can look into if you're interested in, in supporting solar energy? Yes, there is. So if you're like me and you assess your home and you go, that's not financially feasible, that's not going to happen. Um, there's something called community solar. And that allows you to subscribe to a large solar project without having to have the solar on your own property, okay? So it's a great option for people who are like me and realize their home isn't suitable for it, or people who live in apartments, people without that financial capacity to invest, but also people who may not be staying in the same home for 25 years, right? A lot of us, we move around way more than we used to. And so having that freedom to not be st stuck in your house um, with that solar um, system, community solar is a great option. So basically um, it's administered by the same program as the SRACs, Illinois Shines. You can find more info on their website, um, but um, a bunch of people will purchase part of a solar array, right? and subscribe for that portion of electricity, okay? You don't actually get that electricity from those panels does not power your home, right? It all goes to the grid, but you're paying for that portion of it. Um, it doesn't have to be located right next to your house. It just has to be somewhere in your utilities territory, okay? And then you'll get a bunch of, you won't, but the people installing the um, solar farm will get people from the community to subscribe and they'll pay for their electricity that's generated from those panels. So basically what happens is you get two electricity bills. Um, you'll get your standard grid bill that's been reduced by the amount of electricity supplied by those panels. And then um, you'll get the bill for the electricity generated from those panels. At this point in time, the rates from um, those community solar companies to pay for that electricity is going to be lower than the Ameren and ComEd rates, again, because they're incentivizing you to subscribe to and support solar. Um, so it makes it a lot easier um, for you. You can just, you know, essentially change where you're getting your electricity you know, subscription from. But I, I, I'm seeing a lot of these little, like not little, they're, they're large to me. They're, they would be large to, I think, an individual home. But outside of these small rural Illinois communities, um, you'll see these solar arrays go up. Um, they put them next to the, the towns. I see a lot of them going in your schools. Um, there's just a lot of these larger uh, projects for solar happening in rural parts of the state. And so that, that, that is that community solar, you think, Erin, or maybe tied to it somehow? For the most part, yes, that's what we're seeing is those solar farms that are popping up are community solar. I know um, down here in Southern Illinois, 
you'll see like calls for meetings that they're trying to get people enough people together to support the projects. Um, when I just checked the website yesterday, there's a bunch of projects in like the suburbs of Chicago that are that are going up that are that are open and taking subscriptions. So then you apply. Um, there there may be other fees. There may be a contract. You have to look into all the specifics of that um, and see what the terms of everything is. Um, but it's, it's a great option. It's of course, it's not powering all of your electricity, right? It's not powering the towns completely, but it is offsetting that um, electricity that they're drawing from the grid and then adding to those renewable energy, you know, limits um, and quotas that we're trying to fill. So it definitely is, it is making a difference. Um, I know at U of I, they opened their second solar, big solar farm a few months ago. So um, it's it's happening. Um, a lot of towns are are getting some of their electricity offset by those community solar. You know, you'll also see universities, businesses putting up their own solar panels, but those are kind of a different um, a different level and connected in different ways to just their um, their campus or their business, right? So there's two different things going on there. So one another type of um, renewable energy you mentioned is wind, and one of the common arguments you hear against wind is that it kills birds is that actually the case so just like any other tall structure that we put up where birds live yes they wind turbines are are going to impact our bird populations um <clears throat> but you have to kind of weigh the costs and the the benefits right so paying attention to where you put wind turbines um is important so if it's in areas where there's huge you know, migratory bird populations might not be the best option. You can locate them in different areas, but you also have to take into account the grand scheme of, of human-caused bird deaths. Um, so my number one arch nemesis is cats. Cats are responsible for the major billions of bird deaths a year, whereas wind turbines are way down on the totem pole, right? So it's, of course, another cause of mortality. Um, it's in my opinion, it's not the main ones that we should be focusing on. It of course contributes to that. Um, bats are a little bit different story. Um, uh, there's been a lot of research also done on wind turbine um, impacts on bat populations. Since bats um, have longer life cycles and lower reproductive rates, it can impact them at a greater rate. So I'm more concerned about bat populations and bird populations with wind turbines. But again, there's lots of research being done. There are guidance documents being created about where to site the turbines to, to help um, prevent as many of those problems as we can. Of course, it's not gonna be perfect, but I think you have to take everything into consideration um, when you're you know, considering our energy production as we <laughs> look forward into the future, so. I guess it, in, in the similar vein there, um, talking about maybe ways we can contribute back to habitat. Um, yeah, a lot of these solar farms, wind farms, I mean, wind farms, I kind of see them popping up in, um, you know, agricultural fields. Solar farms, for the most part, I see them just like gravel, you know, not, not much happening around. Are there opportunities for some habitat creation here? Or would say if we put a tall grass prairie in a solar farm, would that totally block out all the, the gains that we're meeting there. So what, any options here, Aaron, for maybe creating habitat with some renewal, renew, renewable energy? 
Yes, there definitely is. And this is one of the things that I get really excited about because I really like supporting pollinators and, and prairies. And if we can combine that with solar energy, like, wow, we can get dual purpose off of our land. Um, so yes, there are low growing plants that you can um, establish habitat around solar panels. So no, you don't want to put a tall grass prairie. Um, so one thing you don't want is warm season grasses because they are going to block out your panels. The goal is to choose plants that grow less than three feet tall, right? So we're talking again, the large solar farms that are ground mounted, right? They're not on roofs. Um, and usually, like you said, Chris, there's gravel, um, and then there's a lot of maintenance costs with spraying a bunch of herbicide um, to keep the weeds out of the gravel, or there's turf that's there. And again, that has a lot of high inputs and not necessarily what we want to have in that area. Um, so there are um, seed mixes that you can get that are designed for lower growing um, plants like, you know, Black-Eyed Susan, you can do um, floxes, shorter growing grasses. Um, all of those can definitely be grown um, under your panels, improve the habitat, build soil organic matter. It's all, it's all good stuff. Um, the only thing you have to keep in mind with that is making sure that you can um, hay or mow um, around that habitat as well. So spacing your panels far enough apart that you can make that happen so that you can maintain um, those plants so that they don't get completely out of control. You're not gonna be able to burn where you have your solar panels. So you've gotta um, you know, be able to at least mow in that area to every few years um, to maintain it. But it's definitely something that is, um, especially in Minnesota, they've been doing a lot of research on planting under solar panels. They have, again, a huge guidance document about what plants to choose, what seeds to get, how to do it, how to maintain it. So um, it's it's up and coming um, and I'm excited to see that start to, to follow as we get these solar farms. And I think it, it's a really great um, opportunity again to, to beautify them a little bit. I don't know about you, a big field full of solar panels isn't really aesthetically pleasing to me, but if you surround it by wildflowers, you can put some shrubs on the edge to kind of block the, the view a little bit, I think it would, would really um, make it a lot more appealing to, to folks to have near their home. Um, and then of course, help out as, as habitat um, for all of the critters that we want to have around. So win-win for me. I think you've checked my final box here. So <laughs> yeah, I, um, I just, I'll need to um, ask for a raise and then we'll save our money for a few years and we'll, We'll get one put in. So I, yes, energy creation, it, it, development, it is usually such an ugly topic, but this sounds amazing. And with some habitat, we can make it beautiful. So um, this has been so informative. Aaron Garrett, uh, energy and environment educator coming at us from Metropolis, Illinois. So thank you so much for being on the Good Growing Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, we are produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroff. A special thanks goes to Ken and Katie for being with us every single week, our faithful co-hosts. And good to see you again, guys. Yeah, I missed you guys. And thank you, Aaron, for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. Good to see you too as well. And let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. Uh, it's going to be Ken, Katie, and I, and we're going to be chatting about tomatoes. Ah, oh, those summer love apples. We will 
We will dive into this topic. Uh, if you grow tomatoes, and I know I do, uh, you will want to listen to this show because we're going to get in all the nuts and bolts and everything we know. We are going to spill our our entire knowledge uh, upon upon you. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.